It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. I love round numbers, so when you get to like episode 20, isn't that fun? Uh, Episode 20, and we have one more episode after this. And I know that that's sort of a funny thing because some of you that have been here for the Alumni Summit, uh, some of you have been here for all seven weeks of this training season. And then supposedly the, uh, what, the bonus week ends tomorrow. And then my final session in Alfred is on Friday. I mean, figure that one out. But uh, that'll just uh, have to get you connected with the podcast, I guess, on that one. Or you could linger an extra day. that's, That's not a bad idea, too. Uh, but it, is, it has been somewhat of a, a battle for me to know how to end this, and I think I said that uh, yesterday for yesterday's session as well, because there's so much I'm not saying. And some of the things I'm focusing on in the end are very, very significant to me personally as a leader. It's like this is almost like Leadership 101 in studying Alfred and his leadership over the nation of Wessex has a significant impact on me because it's a Christ model of leadership. And sometimes, you know, just studying the text of Scripture is, I mean, it's amazing. That's, that's obviously the main goal of our life. But then to see it animated in and through sort of the biography, someone else's life has a significant reinforcing effect upon our lives. And that's what this has done for me. This one is called The First Sufferer of the Saxons. And in our normal Ellerslie training, I don't know if I use the term first sufferer a lot. When I'm training men, it's a very common phrase for me to use because it's actually one of the dimensions of manhood that I think needs to be adopted in the Christian mentality. And I'll unpack that as we progress through this. But what you see is this idea of the first sufferer who is Jesus, okay? Jesus is going to be that first sufferer. There's there's always someone who's going to suffer and in a situation, and the man is willing to raise his hand and say, let it be me. Take me instead. And of course, I just unpacked the gospel for you right there. It's not just the great action movies, you know, where there's a hero who steps up and says, take me. That's actually Christ right there. He's the one that is going to step in our place when he sees us in a perilous situation condemned to death, and he's going to say, take me instead. It's the first sufferer. So noblesse oblige, I really wanted to call this the noblesse oblige, but I figured there'd be a whole bunch of people that are like, what in the world is that? So I spoke with a little more clarity, even though it's actually one of my favorite phrases. Just the sound of it, the poetic sound of this French phrase is, I don't know, it stirs me. And it's actually a very inspiring concept too. And you know, this is in the ages, uh, in the age of nobility, and you had all the way down to peasants. You have a caste system. It's not something that most of us are going to be very supportive of today and say, yay, back to the caste system. However, when you're in a caste system, and that's what you're born into, you don't have anything different. That's just your state, your situation. So you can complain about it all you want, you know, hundreds of years later, but that's just what these people inherited. That's what they grew up in. And so as a result, if you were of the noble class, Uh, you were a landholder, then you would have an obligation upon yourself, and that's the noblesse oblige. And it's actually rather fascinating to consider that those with greater strength are responsible at a greater level. 
I don't know, it sounds sort of like a Spider-Man uh, type of motto, uh, right? To, what, what, what was the phrase in Spider-Man? With great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, it's kind of like that, okay? Which is actually a biblical concept. To whom much is given, much is expected, much is required, okay? So this is actually a noblesse oblige concept. Its translation is the obligation of noble, nobility. And so the privileged class have responsibility to use their strength for the preservation of the weak. I mean, it's ironically, here in the midst of a system that we would say is not altogether that healthy, a caste system, and uh, there are extremely poor caste systems that really take advantage of the poor, and there's other caste systems that actually can show how heaven works in a strange way. Because even though the king of kings is higher above all of us, and we're not going to say he's at our level, right? He is going to come down and become the servant of all. And that is what you're going to see in this Saxon society modeled by Alfred, that though he is king, he is going to come and serve with his strength. Of course, we've walked through the gift giver side, the ring giver of Wessex, where you're going to see the king who is entrusted with power and riches and wealth give that riches and wealth to his thanes. He is going to share it as an obligation of the king. It's noblesse oblige. And so as a result, you're going to see a modeling of the kingdom of heaven in that, even though the kingdom of heaven has an inverse caste system where the least is the greatest. So the orphan becomes the, the prime uh, person that we all are serving. The widow, oh, they're like the highest rank in the kingdom of heaven. It's very interesting because we will give an extra measure of grace, an extra measure of service, an extra measure of help to certain ones in the kingdom of heaven, but it's like an inverted caste system. <clears throat> Dr. Merkel says it this way, it is interesting that several years after wresting his victory from Guthrum and establishing peace throughout Wessex, Alfred could still be found personally commanding these smaller combat missions. Though the king was not present for each and every military engagement fought by the Wessex troops, Alfred, until his death, regularly took his sword, shield, and spear into battle, standing shoulder to shoulder in the shield wall with his countrymen. I mean, that's just an amazing statement right there, that he is going to consistently recognize it's his responsibility not to tell other men to fight but that he will go and stand in the shield wall and risk his life every time. He could have these other men risk their life for him. I mean, he's the king. Instead, he is going to consistently throughout his life pick up his shield and his spear, and he is going to go into battle and stand in the shield wall, which means the front lines. And that's, that's a pretty amazing statement. In the Anglo-Saxon world, combat was the duty of the ruling class. And the kings, his thanes, the noblemen, and other rulers of the English people always filled the ranks of the Wessex shield wall. And I think that's one of the reasons why the shield wall itself is very fascinating to me, because it's a form of military, a military unit and a military formation that demands its leaders to take the lead in risking their life. It's a first sufferer position. It is, it is a very, very difficult form of, of a military engagement, and it is very risky for whoever stands behind the shield. These were wooden shields where arrows would pierce them. And so as a result, it was part of the engagement of battle with the shield walls. The first stage is the arrows are going to start flying, and they would pierce through these wooden shields. And so as a result, you could easily get hit even with a shield. It's, it wasn't a perfect defender. And so you're, you're, you feel extremely exposed in the shield wall. 
And yet the study of the shield wall as we've gone through in these uh, now 20 episodes is actually very intriguing, I think, to many of us to just ponder. But extra so, in, to an extra measure in knowing that the king himself stood in the front lines of it. Thus it was, this is Dr. Merkel continuing, thus it was the landed class, not the peasants or slaves, who responded to the summons of the furred and were expected to die on the battlefield. Though this system may have had its faults, when compared to modern societies where liberty has made great advances against this class system, there remains something about the Anglo-Saxon mentality that was nobler than the governing practices of modern nations. You see, we have a commander-in-chief in our country. He's known as the President of the United States. And the President of the United States is insulated. In fact, we will take him to NORAD and hide him inside of a mountain in the midst of a battle. Whereas in the Anglo-Saxon era, it was, the, it was the mandate to the ruling class. If you have this opportunity, you have this privilege, then you are ready to spend it to defend the lower people. So even though a caste system is not something any of us are going to promote, it's still fascinating to ponder how they reasoned through it because it's exactly inverted from the way we do things today. In Alfred's day, no man could order another into combat to face a gory death in battle if he wasn't prepared to stand next to him in that same perilous fight. Isn't that an amazing principle of kingship? I cannot call any of my nobles, any of my thanes, to fight in the battle unless I'm ready to stand right there with them. And if you understand and unpack the gospel message, what do you see? You see Jesus who's going to come and he's going to almost like pick up a shield and stand. He's going to be the shield wall, and he's going to set a pattern, and then he's going to invite us into the shield wall. And so first, he is going to set a pattern and an example for us that we may follow. The image of a king ordering his troops to battle while he sat luxuriously pavilioned far from the place of slaughter was the innovation of a much later age and inconceivable to the Anglo-Saxon mind. The first sufferer. The principle of the stronger vessel. Now, this could get me in deep water. I didn't come up with it. I mean, this is the Bible that says it, right? But when you start using terms like stronger vessel, that triggers the antithesis, which would be the weaker vessel, okay? And that, you know, that can get us as guys, if we try and preach on these things, into some, you know, some hot water. And yet, the Word of God is safe. In other words, the way we handle it, if we try and use it for fleshly purposes and to bring people into a demoted position, well, that, that is an, in, an improper way of handling the truth. However, to recognize that the way we are wired is very purposeful and it reveals the kingdom of heaven. And so when I'm training men, this is one of the things I'm always going to start with. I'm going to start with the idea of the first sufferer, that as a man, you are designed by God to take the hit. And as a result, if there's a bullet flying, you don't shove a woman out there to be hit by it. You don't shove a little child out there to be hit by it. You stand in the way and take it. And a man could say, but look, I am like the strong one, therefore they need me around. I need to like stay around and work the farm. I need to do this and bring in the income. And you know, it sounds really good, but a man is built to lay down his life. If you wanted to discuss the way a man is formed, he is formed stronger. He has a capacity for greater strength physically. He has a, a capacity for greater strength mentally in his fortitude. 
because he is designed to take hits. And so that's one of the things I always say, and again, I could get into hot water with this, but there's a reason why a man initiates in love. And that's the reason Jesus himself is going to be the initiator as the bridegroom and us as the responder, the bride. And that is because the man can handle rejection in a greater capacity. He has more mental fortitude. He may not know that, and he may not feel that. However, it is more appropriate for the man to take the risk in initiation and to be rejected than to stick the woman in that position and have her need to do that and expect her to do that. Now, there's a few women out there that would be like, hey, I'm perfectly fine in doing that, and I don't mind being rejected at all. And I would say, you know what, I'm not going to try and uh, get involved in your mental proceedings on that one. I would just say that there is a pattern that, as a godly man, I accept, and that is it is my responsibility to stand and take the hit, to take the bullet, to take the shame, If someone's going to go hungry, guess who it needs to be? It needs to be the man who has the biggest appetite, right? I mean, I could eat, you know, the rest of my family, uh, you know, under the table, and yet I'm the one, if there's just one little meal left, that I need to let them eat it. And the man is the first one to give up his blanket so that others could be warm. The man is the first one to lay down his life. If there's oxygen and you're passing it around, it's like, last breath of oxygen, you give it to someone else, and the man is ready to die. That's a man. Okay, maybe I should say it this way. That's the man. That's Jesus. And so as a result, when I recognize that I'm formed as a man after that pattern to reveal that truth as a primary through my life, I recognize that I'm built to carry a cross. I'm built to lay down my life so that others can live. And so as a result, when a battle comes, I recognize my role is to be willing to lay down my life so that others can live. See, we, have, we don't have a self-expending mindset anymore. We don't go to war. It isn't a normal thing for us in North America. And so as a result, we don't think this way. But men always have been groomed after the pattern of you are being built strong so that you could lay down your life for others. So I think it's high time we get that back. And of course, back in the Anglo-Saxon era, we see this sort of in the fabric So with all of the problems of the Anglo-Saxon era, if you notice, I'm not spending a lot of time trying to find fault with the Anglo-Saxon program. It just comes out. You know, it's a weak system at this time, but there's a noble strain that is in it that we're missing. So even though we have so many other areas of life where we could brag about and say, but we are so much better than the Anglo-Saxon culture in this regard, this regard, this regard, and this regard, but there's other things that I think all of us have stumbled upon as we've gone through this series that we're like, Okay, now we need that. That's actually better than what we have. And this is definitely one of those areas where we could say that. So the principle of the stronger vessel. Here's where this comes from, this tension. Uh, And this comes from the modern feminist uh, movement. There's a reason why there's a tension here. And that is, here's what I'm going to say. I understand why women have resorted to feminism. I don't agree with it. But I understand that if you don't have Christianity and you don't have the truth, that the, the natural response to the behavior of men would be feminism. It'd be a self-protectiveness. It'd be a, okay, we obviously need to stand for ourselves. I get that. And I, you know, and I really have a, an empathy and a compassion for what has happened to women because of the abuse, the abuse of men. But not all men are like that. And especially if you were to regain the picture of a godly man, there's nothing to fear. It's actually a, a godly man is, is a great gift to femininity. 
And so uh, let's read 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands likewise dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. And as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So a man has a commission here, a husband, is to live with his wife in an understanding way as if she's the weaker vessel. Okay, so we have to presume that the Bible knows what it's talking about. Okay, that's where I start with the premise. Uh, And so as a commission to me, my prayers will be hindered if I don't do this. So it's actually rather important that I don't treat my wife as if she's a man, and I expect her to behave as a man, but that I recognize that she's of a more fragile makeup. And as a result, I live in an understanding way, and I appreciate the fact that she's different than me. I cherish that fact, and that's if, if I was going to describe understanding way, it's to recognize that she doesn't process the same way I do, and that there are certain things, for instance, she can say certain things to me that I can't say to her. And it seems unfair. When you get married, it's like, that's, that's unfair. Or is it? You see, if I'm the stronger one, I have greater responsibility. So therefore, I'm not looking for a justice or a, you know, an evening of the scales. I recognize that I need to carry things. And I'm, I'm built to carry more. And so as a result, I live in an understanding way. And as a result, my prayers are not hindered. And so what you see is Alfred doing the same. He's not calling the slaves and the peasants. And you could say, well, why do they even have slaves there? You know, hey, this is, this is just common to the era. This is what he's inheriting. So let's, let's give Alfred a little break. You're like, well, how come he didn't change that? Well, praise God, he's at least changing something. And so he's moving forward in an amazing way. And we're seeing advancement, but he's not calling the slaves to the front lines of battle. Just, you should ponder that. That's an incredible statement. Because in a caste system that would actually make sense, they're expendables. They don't, they don't, they're not valuable to our society. They're lesser value. He doesn't treat them that way. He actually has a noblesse oblige. And it's the, it's the nobility that actually goes to the front line and is willing to expend their lives for the sake of the peasants and slaves, which is quite an amazing statement. Romans 5, 6, and when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly, for sufferer. We were still without strength. We're not the ones that are ready to do the dying. He's going to die for us. Alfred, the first sufferer in Wessex. He was the first to march against the Vikings in all of Wessex. I don't know if you guys remember the story of Ashdown, but his brother, who was king at the time, is delayed because he's praying. And they were supposed to meet up and attack, but so they start marching. Alfred is the first to march against the Vikings, even though he wasn't even king. He's the first in Wessex to actually stand up against the Vikings. So even historically, it's a fact. He's the first to march against the Vikings. He was the first sufferer. He's the first man in the shield wall. The king is always the one that they build the shield wall around. So he's going to go in and literally front lines, he is going to say, let's stand, men. He's the first to stand against Guthrum. I mean, what a thing to do is to stand against this guy. He's going to rise up and defy him. He's the first king of the Saxons to offer mercy. You see, first of all, a a king of the Saxons never had the opportunity to offer mercy, but he's still going to be the first one to do it. And he's going to offer mercy to Guthrum instead of judgment. 
He's the first to pursue the souls of the Vikings. He is like inaugurating so many different things. He is doing things completely different than anyone else. He is a king as a king ought to be. Alfred, the first improver in Wessex. So I have a tough time calling these first sufferings because not all of it is a first sufferer, but what you're going to see is he's willing to be the first. He's willing to lead. And so a leader can have a lot of definitions, but one of the things that I'm going to draw to the surface of a good leader is that they don't, it's not always just what they speak with their mouth. It's what they do with their life. And then they're willing to be the first to tackle the hard things. They're willing to be the first to change. They're willing to be the first to stand up and repent. They're willing to be the first to get down on their face and acknowledge that Jesus is all. In other words, they lead not always in the ways that you think, like, follow me, men, but they are. They're setting a pattern or an example of a new way of living, of a repentance maybe, but it also could be of a strength, of an action of saying, God wants us to do this, guys. I'm willing to be the first. Stepping forward. And so as we bring this up, what I want, this isn't just a manly attribute. This is something that is in each one of us. It's the man inside of us that wants to initiate that first movement. That you don't look around and measure your steps based on someone else's movements. It's like, well, have you ever had it where uh, could someone raise their hand if they, you know, believe such and such, you know, and it's something you believe, right? And then you look around, if no one's raising their hand, you don't want to raise your hand. But when someone begins to raise their hand, you'll start raising your hand. What, you, what we're oftentimes waiting for is someone to follow. And so my exhortation to you is don't wait for someone to follow. Just be bold. Be the first, there's a blessing, I always say this at Ellerslie when we're doing confessions or something like this, there's a blessing, there's a special blessing to the first. The one who is willing to just initiate and not concern themselves with if anyone else raises their hand. I always appreciate it at Ellerslie when someone is willing to have their, like we, we vote on a message or something, like who wants this message to be given, who wants this message to be given, and then one person will have their hand up for one message, and it's like, you know what, well done. I'm proud of you for being willing to be the only one because, of course, they feel like they're wasting their vote, too. It's like oh, this vote now means nothing because it's the only vote for that message. And yet I highly admire that. The fact that they're willing to express their opinion, even though it's different than the rest of the group, good. Good for you. That's, that's important to cultivate in our life because so many of us are hesitant until we feel groupthink is following a suit. And once we sense that we're part of the group, well, then we'll participate. As opposed to, no, here's where I stand. And as a Christian, you need to have that cultivated in your life. Because the world around you, the culture around you, is headed in the wrong direction. And if you're looking for group uh, uh, agreements on things, you may not have that for some of the things that God is calling you to. So Alfred, the first improver in Wessex. He was the first to change the military system. This military system had been there for centuries, and he is literally going to overhaul it. He's the first to give up a nation's wealth in order to establish a more trusted currency, a more, more trusted coin. And like I've said in previous ones, he is literally going to take four of his pennies and, and smelt them down to turn them into one. He's given up three quarters of his nation's wealth in order to establish a stronger currency. He's, I mean, this guy is a risk taker at the highest levels. He's the first to learn the word of God. He's like, guys, we have to return to the scriptures. 
Well, how are we going to do that? No one knows how to read. We don't even have the Bible in Anglo-Saxon. We don't even know how to read Latin. That's the only way you can get the Bible these days. And so he's like, well, I'm going to learn that. He's the first to learn to read. He's the first to learn to translate. So he doesn't just learn to read. He learns to translate. He's the first to implement a formal education system. He's the first to build a navy. He's called the father of the British Navy. Same guy, okay? This guy is completely altering the course of a nation, and you could say single-handedly, but what is it about this man that stands out? He knows the source of world change. It's Jesus Christ. It's his work on the cross. So he is literally going to build his life around that, and you're going to see the outcomes He is the first to build a new system of laws based upon the scriptures. So let's go back to our term noblesse oblige, which I really like. I don't know if you guys have tried saying it a little, but it's sort of fun. Noblesse oblige. It's a really fun, artistic, poetic type of phrase. The noble obligation in Wessex. But it wasn't just the shield wall. You see, right up to this point, the noble obligation in Wessex has always been the shield wall. Alfred is going to increase that. Sort of like when Jesus uh, comes, he is going to take what they understood as the old uh, covenant, and he's going to amp it up. He is going to increase. You've heard it said, but now I'm telling you. Alfred is going to change the noblesse oblige to be beyond the shield wall. It's still going to include the shield wall, but he is going to amp it up because he's basically saying, look, you know, you can die in a shield wall, but you could die a pagan in a shield wall. I want you to know the scriptures. Anyone who's going to rule as a noble in this country better know the scriptures. To do that, you need to know how to read. So (laughs) this is such an audacious thing. This is an illiterate society. You have these old nobles, you know, covered with scars and, and, uh, you know, they, they, you can just sort of imagine what they sounded like when they talked even. And he's going to tell them, you need to read. Read. What's that? I mean, they have no concept with this. They're old men. And he is going to basically commission them to read. It's a noble obligation. If you're going to lead in this country, you're going to learn how to read. Dr. Merkel says it this way. Alfred aimed at having the young noblemen of Wessex thoroughly grounded in the liberal arts before they were old enough to begin training in other necessary manly skills, those of hunting, riding, and fighting. So most, most boys are being raised... And it's hunting, riding, and fighting that is going to be the basis of their education. That is their education. Alfred is going to say, no, before you do those, you need to have a basic education. You need to learn how to read. And until you know how to read, you can't do those. Do you imagine the, the friction? Some of these older dads are like, huh, what? I need to train my son to be manly. Okay, then train him how to read. And then you can train him how to be manly. He needs to learn how to read. This is literally the priority that Alfred is setting on these things. Literacy soon became an essential qualification for office holders in the Wessex government. This requirement seemed sensible enough. How could a man effectively rule the people when he was unable to read the various law codes of Wessex or the dispatches sent to him from the royal court? Like King Solomon of ancient Israel, King Alfred considered wisdom the quintessential kingly virtue. Thus, any man who aspired to a ruling office must begin training himself in this royal skill. And that royal skill is learning to read. 
So this became the royal skill. This is like the chief skill of the nation. It's not your archery. It's not your ability to hold a shield and a shield wall. Your chief royal skill, like the preeminent skill of all skills, is you know how to handle your letters. And if you can handle your letters, well, then the other stuff can be added on. Because if you can handle your letters, you can know Christ. You can see his word. You can understand his word and learn it, which means you would have wisdom. So Dr. Markle continues, more than any other of Alfred's innovations, this expectation of literacy among the leaders of Wessex met with fierce opposition from his noblemen. Men who had stood in Alfred's court since the beginning of his reign, men who bore on their bodies countless battle scars testifying to their constant loyalty to the throne of Wessex, men hoary-headed and gray-bearded were now told that they must devote their efforts to learning their alphabet and the basics of Anglo-Saxon phonics. Can't you just, this would be a great scene in a movie. Uh, you could just sort of feel them all like, oh, uh, coming into school and sitting down at a little desk. Surely the king was asking too much. Despite the fact that the aged minds of many of Alfred's best nobles seemed to resist new learning, the king was resolute in his new demand. Soon the royal court of Wessex was filled with the comic sight of the thanes of Wessex, the same men who had stood undaunted in the shield wall, standing shoulder to shoulder with the king throughout countless bloody battles, sitting lost in a mental fog as they tried to push their faltering minds through simple Anglo-Saxon texts. How do you change things unless you go through this? Because this would be the reason most of us would say, eh, that's too much. We just can't ask that. But Alfred's saying, we either change it or we don't. And unless we start right now and actually put this mandate on our nobles, they did, I know, it's going to be tough for them. But we have to change this. If we don't, we will always remain as we've been. See, there's a part of your life that is going to run into this same type of hindrance. And there's something about this that is so stirring to me because this is hard. Everything that Alfred faced was hard, and yet he is going to push and push and push through it. And this is maybe one of the hardest where his loyal thanes, if you remember the relationship between king and thanes, are pushing back saying, sir, you can't ask us to do this. And he, you could imagine, you know, he's, he may have a night where he thinks about it and he's pondering it. He comes back the next day and goes, guys, I understand. I understand that this is tr troublesome for you. And they're looking and going, oh, good. He looks like he's coming around. He says, but if you don't learn to read, you lose your position. That's what he's going to say. You will be removed unless you learn to read. Whew. All righty then. <clears throat> Separating out the two, the sheep from the goats and the wheat from the tares. So what we're going to see is Alfred is going to function in a way that is a shadow of what we know in Christ. Because in Christ, you're going to see these moments where they almost seem a little too heavy-handed. Like the sheep and the goats. It's like, I thought this was nice Jesus. You know, the merciful Jesus that loves us and everything. But in the end, he is going to separate to his left the goats and to his right the sheep. And there is a measurement that exists. And, you know, in, in Christ's measurement, it's those that do. Because goats and sheep make a similar noise. There's a lot of similarities between goats and sheep. You know, one goes, uh, what, and the other one goes, it's like an M to a B sound, right? But it's similar, and if, you, if you know, you know, you're just sort of walking by, you may not know the difference. Jesus knows the difference. A good shepherd knows the difference. And the sheep do something. There's opportunity 
to do something. The goats don't do it. The sheep do. And he's going to separate to his right the sheep. And he's going to cast out the goats. Now, many of us, I mean, we just tremble at this, and I think it's good that we do. I think it's actually really good. I'm glad that Jesus actually even includes that in Scripture, that the Spirit of God is going to plant that in Scripture so that we could see it because it sobers us. Sometimes we get this notion that, well, he's all mercy. It doesn't matter, as opposed to recognizing he has given us mercy so that we could behave as sheep. He's not given us mercy so we could continue in our goat ways. He's given us mercy, and when we behave as a goat, he gives us mercy. Why? So that we can change and repent and behave as sheep. Tares and wheat. So when you look at tares, what's, what's missing? They look very similar to wheat, right? So for all practical purposes, they can sort of play the game of being wheat, but they're not wheat. They don't bear fruit. You see, one does, the, the wheat does something. It bears fruit. The tares don't. They don't bear fruit. One does, one doesn't. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You see, what you're going to see in Alfred's kingdom is one does, one doesn't. And he is going to press this forward. I mean, this is even uncomfortable probably for us in here. Now, I would guess that all of us in here know how to read, right? So we're like, whew, whew, I made it through. However, if you were to recognize that if, if something came into uh, you know, our, our world and told us that we had to you know, learn physics, uh, and get an A in physics, you know, on, on a test. That would be rather intense for some of us. Like, I'm just not good with math, and I've never really been attracted to science. Really doesn't matter. That's the requirement. If you really want to be a landowner in America, you have to know physics. Okay, now, some of you could say, well, that's not that hard. Yeah, because you're more inclined towards that. But there's others in here that start a little panic attack uh, at that moment. Well, that's probably what these guys felt like, too. It's like, uh, you know, they're talking to their wife at home. Marge, I just don't think I can learn this. <laughs> but Harry, Harry, you don't have any option, okay? The king means business. You need to do it. Dr. Merkel says it this way. For those who were able to master their letters, Alfred proved to be a generous ring giver. Their efforts were rewarded with wealth and positions of greater honor. Others, however, could not master this new skill despite the king's prodding and all their best efforts. The king was patient with these men, but firm. This is a really neat uh, slide that I'm going to put up here. This is fascinating to me. If they were able to acquire a reader, either a son or a literate slave who could read to them throughout the day, and they were able to demonstrate that they were still capable of tuning their minds to wisdom, though unable to read the text themselves, then Alfred would allow them to maintain their offices. Isn't that reasonable? It's sort of like, okay, these guys are really struggling with this. But if you can find someone who can read to you throughout the day, if you can't read, they can read to you throughout the day, and you can attune your mind to that wisdom and begin to grasp it, all right, I'll let you stay. But for those who prove to have impenetrable skulls, <laughs> those who could make no headway whatsoever in learning, their offices were forfeited and given to other men more capable of filling the position. Whew, it sounds like that fig tree that was taking up space in the vineyard. And the, the guy that was managing the vineyard is like, please, give it one more year. Give it one more year. If it doesn't produce fruit, then I agree with you. It's taken up space that could be used by a fruit that's going to produce fruit. And you know, so when Jesus comes to the fig tree and he finds that it continues to not produce fruit, what does he do? Hey, 
This thing's taking up space. And there's a curse that follows that. That's sort of a scary thought, isn't it? But it's like, hey, you can't just stay here in this same position year after year after year. Mercy, 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 mercy. And then there's judgment. No. Inordinate expenditure. What we're going to see with Alfred is what I'm going to call inordinate expenditure. There is expenditure that every single one of us is willing to give to things. It's like it's measured out. It's, it's sort of like if, if you were thinking of giving a tithe to the church. You sort of look at your whole uh, budget and then you medi out a percentage. 10% is sort of the classically understood idea because tithe in the Old Testament means a tenth. All right, so there, there you go. Uh, and so you medi out a little, and it's good. It's noble. However, Alfred is going to do something that's extremely uncomfortable. It's sort of like he takes all 100% of what he has, and he just dumps it into God's coffers. And then he says, hey, guys, this is the model I'm setting. And that's what you, exactly the same thing you see with Jesus. The Old Testament has a tenth, and then the New Testament seems to not have a tenth. It has 100%. <laughs> and we, don't, we oftentimes don't know how to get across that bridge because we're like, I, I actually identify with the tenth a lot more than I do with the 100%. Alfred is going to model this like 100% givenness. Everything about his kingship doesn't belong to him. It belongs to Christ. And as a result, his life is going to be used to change the world around him. And I'm extremely attracted to it because I live in a world not unlike Alfred's, which is in disrepair. And I'm like, God, what is it that I can do that would be like Alfred influence upon my world, upon my own life? upon my own marriage, upon my own family, upon my own church, upon my own ministry, upon this community, upon this world around me. Lord, I don't want to hold back and just medi out a little to you. Say, well, God, I'm tithing my 10% of my life that you can use any way you want. Okay, so this amount of time in my day you can use. This amount of mental energy, this amount of creative energy you can use for your glory. The rest of it's mine. What you're going to see with Alfred is he is going to take his life and he is going to splurge it. On God. And I, for one, am impacted by it. It's like, wow. And so I call this squeezing the grapefruit. If any of you have ever heard me talk about grapefruits, first of all, I like grapefruit, right? And you cut out those little, you know, you have a little special spoon that was serrated on the edge, and you, you, you cut out the, the little, uh, what are those, triangular, triangular little cubes. Are there, is there a name for those? Bites? Okay. Uh, grapefruit bites. And then you take out all the bites and you eat them, and it's good. It's, it's really good. But then the real fun begins, because now you have the squeeze. Okay, and if any of you have ever gone through this, there's some type of weird joy. It's a human joy that comes from squeezing a grapefruit. However, a lot of people leave their grapefruit unsqueezed, or not fully squeezed. You ever notice that someone throws that in the trash and you're thinking, there was a lot more in that. They left a lot behind. I don't want our lives to end with our final breath with a whole bunch of juice left in the grapefruit. And this is what we see with Alfred, is he is going to live 50 years. I'm already 50. I'm like older than Alfred was when he died. That is a weird thought. He is going to do all of this before he's my age. <laughs> and that's an indictment on me already. So I'm already starting a little upside down in this study. It's like, whoa. But I also think it's important that I'm like, I'm seeing this. 
And I, you know, I've given my life to Jesus the best I know. But I love an inspiration like this, which is just like, Eric, I think there's more in the grapefruit. Are you willing to give it? Wow. Dr. Merkel says this, whenever Alfred found himself freed for a moment from his worldly affairs, worldly affairs is in quotes for those that are getting this via podcast, the king set himself to translating Latin texts into Anglo-Saxon. Every spare moment, what is he doing? A king isn't responsible for translations of texts. This king is, because this king knows the most important thing he can give to his people is the texts of the historic church, specifically the texts of Scripture. And he knows that the only way to get that done is someone does it. And he's one of the only people that has actually spent so much time in his life that he has learned both Anglo-Saxon and Latin, and he can take the Latin and convert it into Anglo-Saxon for a people he knows and understands. He's in a unique position in history to make this transfer, and this king is going to spend his free moments translating texts from Latin to Anglo-Saxon. Dr. Merkel continues, the work of translating was always a joint venture requiring the constant assistance of the courtly scholars whom the king had recruited to Wessex. Each passage was read out in the Latin, then discussed by the cadre of scholars, and finally turned into Anglo-Saxon by the king. In his best attempt to convey the meaning agreed upon by the learned gathering. It's pretty impressive. Before his death, King Alfred personally translated the following into the Wessex vernacular. Pastoral care by Gregory the Great, the consolation of philosophy by Boethius, the soliloquies of Augustine, and the first 50 psalms of the Bible. These works were then copied and distributed as widely as possible throughout the schools and churches of Wessex to provide reading material for the newly literate nation. Perhaps the king's decision to translate the biblical text into Anglo-Saxon vernacular seemed like an obviously pious choice to Alfred. This attempt to make the biblical text so readily available to the people would, however, put the Anglo-Saxon king in dangerous company long after his death. So what he is doing to us in this room sounds totally noble. He wants to give his people the text of Scripture. However, to take it from the Latin and to stick it in the native tongue of any people... Hmm, this is a questionable practice because it's only the learned uh, and the bishops and the scholars and those that work inside the monasteries that know the Latin at this time. So as a result, they're the ones that are entrusted with the Scripture. So what he is doing, even though he doesn't see it at any time, and he's a king, so he can decide to do it, is he is doing something that in the years to come is going to create great conflagration. Nearly four centuries later, the followers of John Wycliffe, known as Lollards, would be burned at the stake for their insistence that the scriptures should be translated from the Latin into the English vernacular and made available to the laity. And so, so much of our history, those of us in this room, flows out of what Wycliffe is going to do. In fact, to many of us, Wycliffe is a hero, a hero of heroes. And Tyndale, a hero of heroes, Lord, open the king of England's eyes that he would see. The king of England, if you want to say it this way, he wasn't called the king of England, the king of Wessex or the king of the Anglo-Saxons at this time, his eyes were already opened. He saw it. However, this is going to be buried and obscured in history to the point that even most of us in this room did not know that. That Alfred was the first of the English kings 
to actually initiate a translation of the Bible so that it was in the common tongue. Amazing. Alfred, the first to pray. So we have all these firsts. This man, in every regard, is going to shock us, okay, at every turn. He's a king, and a king has so many responsibilities. He doesn't, he's not like one of us. These are normal people that actually has responsibilities to pray and to study the Bible. Most of us are not thinking of translating the Bible into a foreign tongue, right? We're, we're just trying to survive and understand it ourselves, let alone change the world with it. This man is going to spend a season of his life learning it to the point where he can translate it, and then he's going to begin to translate it, but he also recognizes that the greatest, most important gift that he could give to his nation and to his God would be to spend his life in prayer. Now, this, is, this is a really uh, hard one for many of us to swallow because we know how important prayer is, but he's a king. How could a king do this? I mean, a king, he's still on the front line in the shield wall for battles. He's translating text every spare moment he has. He's like renovating the economy. He's the father of the British Navy. Everything about this guy is like active, active, active. <clears throat> so I, it says, Alfred I to pray, the invention of the oxhorn lantern. Okay, that'll make sense as we go forward. But there's going to be an invention in this little uh, story here that I'm going to give that is going to be around for many, many centuries in uh, England. Dr. Merkel says this, Alfred resolved that inasmuch as his circumstances allowed, he would devote his strength and mind to God's service for one half of each day, spending this time in study and prayer. Half of a day. Every day. This is a king with more responsibilities than any of us in here have. And he is going to devote half of his day to prayer and study. I don't know exactly if you're able to swallow this, uh, but as I'm like <laughs> looking at this life, whoa, that is an amazing commitment. You see the priority of his life. He says, this matters most. And you, know, you can only see the outcomes. That's one thing we can see. We don't know a lot of the intimate things. We don't know his actual prayers. There's a lot of things that are missing in the storyline of Alfred, but what we are going to see is the trajectory that is going to come out of his life. We are going to see the broad impact that is going to flow out of this man's life who is going to devote half of his day to prayer and study of God's Word. Dr. Merkel says, after a great deal of experimentation, the king finally determined that a 24-hour day could be accurately measured by six candles. Each 12 inches, each 12 inches in length made from a portion of candle wax with a weight equivalent to 72 pennies. By burning these six candles end-to-end, end, Alfred could precisely track his progress throughout the day and night. Unfortunately, the king discovered that the gusty English wind often interrupted his plans. So if he's going to give a, a half day, he needs to know how long a half day is. So actually, he creates and invents this system of candle burning that six candles, 12 inches in length of a certain weight, would burn, and over that time, that would be 24 hours. So obviously three of them would be a half day. And so he can always track his progress throughout the day and night so that he gives to God what he vowed he would give. He vowed to God he would give a half day every day. And, but the problem is, what if the candle blows out? Oh, no. Well, we have this gusting English wind that is messing up our, my, my entire plan here, says Alfred. To combat this, Alfred designed a small lantern. 
made from wood but fitted with sides made of thinly shaved oxhorn, which Alfred had discovered was translucent. This became England's first oxhorn lantern and was used by the king for the rest of his life to help him faithfully fulfill his vow to devote his time to religious services. That's, that's amazing. Everything about this guy, I don't know if you've sort of felt it too, it sort of amplifies and increases over time. You're like, what else is Eric hiding about this guy? It is truly remarkable. I think if we went back just to the Battle of Ashdown and we saw young Alfred, who wasn't even king, rise up against uh, the Vikings and fight, the first time the Vikings had ever been defeated on, on British soil, if you want to say it that way. First time. I mean, every other victory, it was just, they were just rooting every, every army of the Saxons. And Alfred, by himself, his brother didn't show up for the battle. He's like missing. And Alfred is going to move forward with half the army against the Vikings. And the boldness and the nobility of Alfred, even then, when he's not even king, he's just the king's right-hand man at that time, is going to be enough for all of us to say, okay, I like this guy. But then to watch how he's going to inherit the kingdom and how he is going to handle, he's going to lose eight straight times against the Vikings. And he is not going to relent. He's the one country in all of the seven countries of uh, Britannia at the time that the Vikings cannot defeat. And finally, it's through betrayal, the betrayal of warfare, that he is going to end up losing his country. He's going to hide out on a swamp island for multiple months. And even then, with all wisdom, he should just leave the country. He should just go to Europe and find safety. Instead, with his little small band on two acres, is going to mount a response and take back Wessex, which is so supernatural it's hard to even describe it. It doesn't even make sense. It's like Gideon coming against the Midianites. It doesn't make sense. And we would be fine if we just saw that and we're like, wow, that's good. But then how he treats Guthrum after he captures Guthrum is so extraordinary that we don't have words for it. And we're staring back going, I've never seen a king offer mercy like that. But he doesn't just offer mercy, he pursues Guthrum's soul and sees Guthrum come to Christ. This is like the evil Hitler of the Vikings who is going to repent and come to Christ? I mean, that, who would have ever thought that? But then it just begins. And once Alfred has his nation, he is going to begin to change the military system of his nation, and he's going to turn 30 different cities into walled cities, build a moat around each one of them, change the entire military structure that had been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. And he is going to make everyone uncomfortable. He's going to change it all. He says, we need a military that actually works that can stand up against these Vikings. But he has just begun at that time. And so as we go through this and we realize he's going to change the navy, he's going to change the economy, he's going to change the schooling system, he has an illiterate society with no books, he is going to change all of that. All right. We could feel very small in light of the story. This is not a big guy. Wessex is not a big country. He has very limited strength. In many ways, you could almost say that many of us have more potential influence than even Alfred had. <laughs> With the, we have a worldwide stage today. Now, I know we all feel very smallish in it, but if we were to take our life the way Alfred took his and leverage it to the fullest and not suck our thumb and play the pity party for how difficult our life has been, 
or not suck our thumb and play the pity party for the fact that why are we born in a generation where everything seems to be falling apart? Well, Alfred could have thought that. He was in the generation where everything was falling apart. And yet, he is going to rise up. As the old adage goes, it's when everything starts falling apart that heroes are defined. When everything's peaceful, you don't call someone a hero. Heroes are made in the difficult times. And as a result, you are going to see a hero emerge out of the darkest hour. Well, welcome to the world in which we live. It is becoming darker and darker. And what God is desiring are for Alfred-like Christians to rise up and to utilize the sphere of influence that they have, even if they feel like they're on a swamp island that's two and a half acres in size, to rise up and call the church to Egbert Stone once again, to fight, to stand against this evil, and to push back, and to change everything that can be changed for the glory of Jesus Christ. The manly motto, if someone is going to suffer, let it be me. In every situation in life, you need to recognize we can look around and say, where are the people that are supposed to be standing up against this? How come no one's saying anything about that? And then we need to pause and recognize the manly motto. Well, maybe if someone's going to speak, it needs to be you. Jackie Pollinger once had the statement, she, she was in the walled city of Hong Kong where even the police wouldn't go uh, for like 45, 50 years. It was a significant time frame in her life. And when she came back to the United States to speak to the people of this country, she was struggling without trying not to get mad at us for how fat and content we were when there's a dying world out there. And anyone who returns from the mission field struggles with that transition. That's a really hard one because we do look like we're just sitting on our thumbs over here. We have so much thought and so many noble notions, but what are we doing with it? We have been given a great trust. We have a treasury, but are we sharing it as ring givers? Are we giving that which has been given to us? And one of the things she said is, whenever you read an, a, a newspaper article about something that's happened in this earth, never presume that someone else is going to respond to it. You always have to read that article as if you're the only one in the world that may be seeing it. And say, God, what would you have of me? What would you have me do? You see, as for sufferers, we are willing. It doesn't mean God's going to say yes every time, but we are willing to say, okay, God, here's my sword, here's my bow, here's my shield. What would you have me do? And that's the manly motto. That's quitting yourself as a man. That's endrizomai in Scripture. Be manful. And that's the commission to the body of Christ, not just to the men. All of us are called to allow the man inside of us to rise up and do what the man does. He is willing to sacrifice. He's willing to give. He's willing to squeeze the grapefruit to get every last drop out. This is the first sufferer principle. It's Jesus. This is Jesus' life. This is what Jesus did and, brace yourselves, still does. He ever lives to make intercession for us. So if he is inside of us, what do you think he's desiring to do? To do exactly that. To expend us for his glory. So self-protectiveness is the opposite of what the Spirit of God is desiring to do inside of us. Medding out a little 10% of our life is not what the Spirit of God is attempting to do. He's desiring to say, can you put it all on the altar? 
But God, then I wouldn't have anything. I know I would have it all. Well, what does that mean? That means you're mine. And that means I can use you to change this world. Isn't that what you would want? Wouldn't you want to have your purpose fulfilled? The only way to have your purpose truly fulfilled is to give yourself fully to me. Not to medi out just a little of yourself, but to give the whole thing. You see, just like Alfred's going to amp it up in his generation, Jesus is amping it up in the new covenant. He's like, yeah, I'm not just looking for a tenth. Could you give me it all? And yet when we give him our all, we never regret it, by the way. No one, no human that has ever given their all to Jesus regretted it, looked back, goes, oh, I really, that was a terrible investment. It is always the wisest decision. Even though it can come with challenge and difficulty, I guarantee you not giving it comes with even more challenge and difficulty. The most fulfilling place that we can find is being fully His. That's what we were designed for. So that is where the greatest fulfillment comes. Father, here we are. Lord, we struggle with only giving you parts instead of giving you the whole. And I pray that you would go through our pantry right now and you would show us where we're holding back and that you would gently touch those areas, Lord, just as you did Mary of Bethany when you touched her spikenard. Lord, may you touch our spikenard, those areas of trust that are outside of you. Lord, we just ask that you would bring us to the place where it's not just part but whole. Lord, you didn't save us in part. You saved us in whole. And may we not respond in part, but in whole. Lord, we love you. You are worthy, deserving, cherished above all. We adore you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.